An increasing number of young men and women live together, but strongly maintain their individuality and their options by not making it official before God and others. Today, there is a growing trend among midlife wives who change their minds about long-term marriage. Before you commit yourself to the creed of, I need to do what I need to do, let's face what God believes about covenant relationships, including the marriage covenant. Here's our study leader, Dave Wurtson. I had a couple come to my office this week because i got to do another wedding that's coming Friday. They're doing it on Friday because they're going on a cruise on Sunday. I think that's really cool. They had counseling with another one of my brothers that we work with, but they wanted me to do the ceremony, so I was getting to know them and heard their testimony. But just before they left, I said, there's one thing uh, I need to ask you. Do you have your wedding license? You might say, well, why in the world is that? I hear a million times, what's the importance of a sheet of paper? Well, a marriage license looks like this. I got one right here. It has the state of Texas seal on it, and it's signed down here by the pastor, and then the Ellis County uh, clerk has to sign it as well. And you're not officially married until this is all legally done. Like, I'm really not supposed to pronounce you husband and wife unless I know that we've got this document in hand. And the reason for that is that your marriage is bigger than just two of you deciding, hey, it'd be great to shack up together, and it'd be great to live together, and we have a really good sex together, and we have great friendships, and we just want to kind of hang out for a while. Marriage is bigger than that. Our culture right now is moving away from that. In fact, I was deeply reminded, as I met with a friend earlier this week, their child is almost 30 now. And so I was asking a little bit. I said, hey, you know, your son's almost 30. You've been telling me for years now how he's going with this girl. He's graduated from college, and he has a job, and she's graduated from college. She has a job. And I said, when are they going to tie the knot? When are they going to get one of these documents? My friend kind of looked down and said, you know, boy, that's what we're challenging them to do. In fact, when they come over to visit, we really don't let them stay in the same rooms. You see, this couple's living together. Now, this kid was raised in a Bible church, just like a lot of you kids, like a lot of you young adults. He was raised in a church just like ours. And what's going on here? Young people today are having a hard time. In fact, they're waiting till in their 30s. You see, like when I was 20, I didn't have a job. I wasn't finished with school. I didn't have a place to live. But I loved Mary. And she had graduated from school, so I made the right decision. But I wasn't afraid. I, I even called up my dad down in Brazil and said, hey, you know, I'm going to get married to Mary. It's such a date. You really need to work it out to come there. You see, why should my friend get married? He's got a good thing going. The woman, she's working. He gets the sex that he wants. In fact, as I really interact with couples like that, they're afraid of the commitment. They don't want the entanglement. They don't want all the legal hassle. And the basic idea is that we live for ourselves. And some of them are saying, I don't like what my parents had, so that needs to really convict us. But sometimes they're saying that I don't like, I don't want to have that hassle. I don't want to have to work things through. And so you kind of go through life kind of in perpetual high school. So that's on one side. We have a young couple that's really afraid to enter into a marriage covenant. On the other hand, Christine Wicker is a journalist, and she wrote an article called From I Do, you know, the covenant of marriage, to I'm going. 
And Christine talks about not a young couple that's afraid to tie the knot. She talks about midlife women that are just leaving. In fact, she tells about one of her friends. She has a whole bunch of friends that have ended, just said, I'm done with the marriage covenant. She told about a friend that lived up in upstate New York. They'd been married for 21 years. The woman went down to Florida, and she was just going down there for a vacation. She never came home. She just wrote to her husband, said, I got an apartment, have a job. I'm not coming home. And that was the last thing that her husband knew. And she's having dance lessons. She's got a new job. She can now pursue romantic guys that are really a lot better looking than the husband she married that's now gotten old and crotchety. And her married friends, when they go out to Chili's or someplace like that, they actually envy the freedom they have. Now, you laugh, but a lot of your friends are living that kind of a life right now. When I first started in the pastorate, I had a ton of ladies that were abandoned. Now I have a ton of brothers that were abandoned. What's going on? The series that we're wrestling, what is, what is marriage? Did we wrestle these weeks on what is marriage? We've decided that marriage is two individuals that find fulfillment in one another, and the meaning of that relationship is to meet each other's needs, to meet each other's companionship needs, to meet each other's needs for self-fulfillment. And as long as that works out, we hang out in the relationship. But as soon as it isn't working out anymore, especially like, for example, when you're a woman, you get to be 40 and 42, and your kids go away from school, and, and you say, man, I've been washing dishes for other people for centuries now, and, and I've been helping my husband, and he, he just doesn't come through and everything. I'm just going to do some things for myself. And that's a really powerful argument, unless you got something deeper. What I want to talk to you about today is a very ancient word, and it's right at the guts of what a marriage is. In fact, it's what this marriage license is about. It's the word covenant. In fact, when I mention covenant to young people, they've never heard of it. Whoever heard of covenant? Nobody talks about covenant. Some of you are from some old Presbyterian backgrounds. You remember a marvelous custom that you enter into a church covenant. And that means that when you choose to join a church, like a Presbyterian church especially, you enter into a covenant promise with them. And that's one of the words that it's used. But it's also used of the marriage. If I were to ask you, how many of you ever heard of marriage covenant? You've all heard of it. But, but it's something that we hardly ever use in any walk of life. But what I want you to begin to think about today, that the word covenant is one of the most precious words to your heavenly father and to his son and to the spirit. So my passion today is that the Lord's going to awaken a new group of people that don't not forget about covenant, but they actually know what it means. I want you to begin by looking at Genesis chapter 15, because your eternal salvation depends upon covenant, and it begins way back in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 12, the Lord called Father Abraham, and he wanted him to have many sons. How many of you are sons and daughters of Abraham? If you know Jesus as your Savior, you are. Where did all that begin? Well, God said, Abraham, I want you to obey me. I want you to leave the land where you are. I want you to go to the land that I will show you. If you do, I'm going to give... He promised him the land. He promised that I'm going to keep fulfilling the promise that he made to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. And he made an incredible promise. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the world through your seed. But we get to Genesis chapter 15, and Abraham has a big problem. He's old, and he doesn't have any kids. 
And that's how that chapter begins. In chapter 15, Abraham is meeting with God. It says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And God says, don't be afraid, Abraham. I'm your shield. You're a very great reward. And Abraham said, oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. Most of you aren't honest with God like that. But God says, Abraham, I'm your shield. I'm going to protect you. And Abraham, in essence, says, what are you going to do for me? Your promises are bogus. Because you told me that I would have tons of kids. I don't have any kids. And what he's really griping about is one of the biggest body slams in the ancient world. If you didn't have any kids, then one of your servants became your heir. Eliezer, Eliezer in English. Eli means my God. Etzer means help. So Abraham is reminded every time Eliezer, who's a very trusted servant to him, every time he calls his name, he says, my Lord is my help. And Abraham's thinking, God isn't helping me. The biggest promise he made to me was to generate a kid. And I don't have a kid. So God says, okay, Abraham. And Abraham's actually suggesting a plan. You know, maybe you're going to have to fulfill the promise through Eliezer. And he's really upset about that. God says, Abraham, we're going to have a ceremony. So we read, it says that God tells Abraham, it says he said to him in verse 7, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees, reminding him of Christ, of God's past faithfulness to him. But Abraham said, oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of the land? And the Lord said, bring me a heifer, bring me a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So all of you kids that really like animals and stuff, God collects all these animals, only this isn't a good time for the animals. <laughs> It says, Abraham brought all these and, and cut them in two. So he cut a heifer. A, that was a job. No chainsaws. He cut a goat, a ram. This is long work. And he arranged the halves on each side. The birds, whoever, he did not cut in half. They're too little. Then the birds of prey came down, and Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. And a thick, dreadful darkness came over them. And then the Lord said, no for certain that your descendants are going to be strangers in the country. He actually predicts they're going down to Egypt and being in slavery down there for 400 years. They will be enslaved. They'll be mistreated for 400 years, but I'm going to punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards, they will come up with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, and the sin of the Amorites has not yet been complete. That's the curse on the Canaanites who are idolaters and immoral. When the sun had set, now listen, and the darkness had fallen, very moving ceremony, a smoking fire pot. Just like later on at night when the children of Israel had the pillar of fire lead them. It's that image of, a, of an old-fashioned fire pot that's flaming in the, in the darkness. It appeared and it passed through the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. See that word? There's our word. He made a holy, sacred promise to Abraham. And every one of you, your life depends upon that covenant. Because that's the covenant that produced Jesus. That's the covenant that led to the cross. That's the covenant that led to the resurrection. And this is at the beginning of the story. And God is saying, Abraham, I'm into ceremonies where you promise to keep your promises. I can show you all over the world, among the Amorites, among the Hittites, among the Egyptians, among the Mesopotamians, everybody understood. To you, it's a very strange custom. But the custom was this, when you really wanted to cement a promise, when you wanted to cement the vows that you were making, when two friends like Jonathan and David, 
or uh, you have Nebuchadnezzar, even as a king, wanted to make sure that the Israelites were going to be submissive to him. They entered into a covenant. And this is one of the ancient passages in the Bible, and it describes this ancient custom that I just described to you. And the idea is that usually the two people would walk through the broken animals. And what you would say to your friend, you would say, if you disobey the covenant, if you don't fulfill your side of the promise, then that's what's going to happen to you. Only you notice something really important. God put Abraham to sleep, and he couldn't walk through the animals. Because this is a promise of grace. This is a promise that God says, it's not going to depend upon Abraham's obedience. not going to depend upon Abraham's faithfulness to me, although Abraham's going to do those things by grace. But this promise is so important that my servant is going to be asleep. And in a trance, Abraham sees the image of God, the representation of the invisible God, like a torch moving through those animals. And God was declaring to you, this morning, I keep my promises. The essential part of my character is, covenants mean a lot to me, and I'm going to come through. And that's one of the earliest things that I want you to begin to think about. Your heavenly daddy this morning, and his son, and the spirit, we're into a culture where your word means nothing. There used to be a day, it's not that long ago, when I first came to Midlothian, if Al Bakum met with a friend and the guy said, I want to buy your horse. I saw your horse at the Futurity in Fort Worth. I'll buy the horse. That was done. That's all it took. Right in my own lifetime. No more. No more. You know, if Al were here, he'd have to bring lawyers. You have to bring lawyers. We've got to sign a million times. And then it doesn't mean a blessed thing because I spend a ton of time in court where everybody argues why they're going to break their promises. And my prayer this morning is that every single one of you in business, in your friendships, in your families, what I'm talking about most of all in your marriage, you're going to realize it begins, we've got a heavenly father, like I taught you last time together. He's the one that you need to let define marriage. And the second time we're having together, I'm telling you, he defines marriage as a sacred covenant. There's two times in the Old Testament where God uses this idea of covenant. And interesting enough, he uses it, first of all, against cougaring. Everybody know what cougaring is? Some of you probably don't. What a cougar is is an older woman that's afraid that she's a little bit over the hill, that she's beginning to lose her physical attractiveness, and she goes hunting, especially for young teenage boys. And the heavenly daddy loves your kids. I want every teenager, you need to pass this on as you're raising your kids. Everyone, there should not be any 12-year-old boy in our church that doesn't know what a cougar is. You say, what are you talking about? Turn to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2 is a chapter that talks about a daddy that's having another conversation like the second kind of father-son and you daughters can listen in as well. In Proverbs chapter 2, the daddy's having another talk with his sons. And all of you daddies need to have these kind of talks with your kids. And especially with your sons and daughters as they start to move into puberty and they start to move into maturity. Proverbs chapter 2 is a powerful illustration of how you warn your kids against cougaring. 
this chapter, you can look at it. We're not going to talk about the danger of a life of crime, a danger of a life of drugs, but the father's also really strongly preparing his kids against getting into a life of violence, a life of drugs, a life of stealing, a life of joining a bunch of bandits, which is still a very powerful thing in our culture. A lot of kids I'm working with are getting involved in the wrong group. No moms and dads are there. Nobody prepared them, so they're just kind of out there. So they join a gang. That's another message. So it warns against the evil man, the man who doesn't keep his word, the man who leads into a life of violence. But there's another person it talks about in chapter 2. It warns against the evil woman. Look at verse 16. It will save you from the adulteress. Thou shalt not commit, everybody, your heavenly daddy says, I hate adultery. Your culture doesn't hate adultery anymore. If the person's more attractive or they meet your needs, in fact, you even have husbands and wives, that's fine. I don't have any trouble with that. That's not a good thing. That means you don't care. It means you're just living for your passion. You're just living for lust. So this daddy teaches son, listen, it will save you. And it uses the word, the word adulterer actually means a foreigner. Literally, that's where the word comes from. And the next word that's used relates to that way as well. And the idea is, it's someone that doesn't stay in her family bounds. You see, God means for every one of your kids to be in a family. Then he means for them to be an extended family. Then he means under the new covenant for them to be in a church family. Really important stuff. When you start moving away from God, you move into foreign territory. And I want every one of you to know, every one of you guys, like if you're away on a business trip and you go to Montreal, for example, when I was growing up in upstate New York on our day off, we would go to Montreal and, and the allure of a French-Canadian girl. That's part of every one of you guys. If I take you out of your normal surroundings, if I bring a bunch of Yankees down here from New York, wow, those Texans girls at Gillies. You have tons of songs about them. Look at those, look at those country girls. Boy, if I got an East Coast guy, bring him into a Texas culture, he's out of his element. There's something really powerful about that. You need to warn your kids about that. No attachments, living for the moment. This woman just lives for right now. Doesn't have any connections. No men that she's responsible to, like a daddy that she is really responding to and loves. So it tells us that this woman, she's the, she's the wayward wife. She's a woman that has left the track. She's gotten off the road. That's the picture that's used here. It says that she uses smooth word. The word seductive, the NIV translated seductive. It's she uses her words smoothly. The way to a man's heart is not through his stomach. It's through your words. Every immoral woman knows. Man, I, you're incredible. What a gifted guy. Wow, you played such an incredible game. Wow, wow, I'm watching you in business. Man, I've never worked like, for a boss like you. And she comes to work at 6.30 in the morning. And like she, it took her an hour already just to get ready. And the guy left his wife, and she was still in her jammies, you know, telling him to take the garbage out. That's the game that's played. This woman has smooth words. And this woman in this passage is an older woman that every young guy... If I asked the guy in this room, how many of you ever had a crush on a, on a teacher? What was one of your first crutches? As young men begin to develop sexually, they get attracted to older women. And Proverbs actually uses that to help the fathers teach their sons, you want to be attracted to a godly, wise woman. 
and you run like crazy from the woman I'm talking about now. And it uses that, and it even uses that as a symbol of this woman that's godly represents skillfulness and wisdom. This woman represents destruction. So the father is actually preparing a son against this older woman, this cougar that's coming after him, and she's going to use seductive words. What did she do? She's abandoned the partner of a youth. So so don't say this has never happened before because this is a thousand years before Christ. This is ancient Hebrew literature in another culture, and midlife women are leaving, and it uses a word of a friend, a companion. Mary's my companion of my youth. No one, whatever happens in life, no one will ever be able to replace who Mary is to me and the experiences that we've had. She's my my companion, my close one, the one I, I grew up with, the one that I got married to in our youth. That's what it's talking about. She's my companion. It uses a beautiful word that means someone that's close to you, someone that's at your side. And those are the kind of values that we want to really hold on to. This woman forgets about that. She doesn't care about the companion of her youth. Now look at this. She ignored the covenant. And there's our word from Genesis 15. And God is calling a covenant of marriage she made with the lover of her youth, and she made the covenant before God. As you're thinking about what you're going to do in your marriage, as you're training your kids about what marriage means, I want you to realize that that it all begins with God. It's God's covenant. It's God's holy promise. This woman treats all that lightly. She forgets about it. Now, our culture holds that you can do that and nothing will happen. And I want every one of you, I just plead with you, that ain't so. If you leave the partner of your youth and you don't care about your holy covenant and you go out cougaring, you, your friends might envy you. And the girl, Christina Wicker, that's writing about all those friends, in fact, she actually ends the article pleading with people to grow up and not doing this and get some endurance. She actually comes out against the practice. But I want you to leave this room and I want you to become ambassadors for covenant faithfulness and really caring about relationships and caring about sacred promises. And you start to create that among a whole new generation of young people, your kids. Because what's going to happen? It says this woman, she might look like she takes you to heaven, but she actually takes you to death. To the dominant theme. It says her house leads down to death. Her paths to the spirits of the dead. None who will go to her return or attain to the paths of life. That's heavy duty stuff. Proverbs is telling you something really important. Covenants mean a lot to the Lord. They mean a lot to you. It's going to be really tough working through with the companion that you enter into a sacred vow with. You're going to get mad at each other. You're going to get upset. You're going to have tremendous passions. You want to leave. And you got to remember, my heavenly daddy loves promises. So I'm going to work it out. I got to keep struggling. I got to keep asking God's spirit to work. And I'm not going to go cougaring. I'm not going to listen to the voice that says, I've only lived once. i got to be me. Because if you live for what your passions ask you to do, you'll die. You're going to end up, and I, one of the things that breaks my heart is I go into a rest home with a former cougar. 
And now no young teenager at all would ever care for them. And strangers are taking care of them. No family wants to show up. And then we do their funeral in a funeral home with about three people because they've cut off all their ties. Because Satan plays a really dirty game. It looks in the moment like you're right on top of the world. But when you become a person that breaks promises lightly and you just live for the moment, for the passion of your body, you die. Now, that's a warning against the cougar. Let's talk about an old guy. Now, let's talk about the other side. In Malachi chapter 2, in fact, there's another powerful passage. Look at Malachi chapter 2. It talks about old guys, and it warns against trophy wives. And the idea here in Malachi chapter 2 is that as the children of Israel return from their Babylonian captivity, they are getting resettled in the land, and the Lord is very upset in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, about many things, and we want to look at what he's upset about their marriage. Look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. Another thing you do, and so we begin another subject. Your heavenly daddy is especially talking to you men now. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with your tears. You weep and wail. So they're, you're church-going people. A lot of people ask me, I can't believe, how can church-going people do that? So it pictures an older guy, and it's under the old covenant, so he goes to the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. That's a little measly thing compared to Solomon's temple. But God says, hey, I'm going to rebuild it. In fact, a couple hundred years later, God's Holy Spirit is going to send the Son of God into this incredible temple. But so this old exile, he's returned from exile, goes in the temple, and he cries out to God. Oh, God, I want you to help us. I want you to meet my needs. I want you to bless my family. Look what God says. Another thing you do, you flood my altar with your tears. You weep in your wail. So very emotional because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts the pleasure from your hands. Their sacrifices are rejected. Why? God didn't tell him why. Why isn't God going to listen to them? Why? It's because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Same things we had in Proverbs 2, only now we've got an older guy that's leaving the wife of his youth because you have broken faith with her. That means you broke your promise. That's what it means to break faith. Faith used to be really powerful in our midst, and it used to really mean something. But no longer. People easily break their promises. No faith. And God is saying, I'm going to be a witness against you and the wife of your youth because you've broken faith with her. Though she was your partner, same idea, your companion, the, the one that you made those early marriage vows with, the wife of your marriage covenant, there's marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them want to listen? This is what you teach your kids. My friend that was raised in a Bible church just sleeping with his girlfriend, I promise you, they don't want to have kids. Kids would get in the way. In fact, if they do make a mistake and they do have a kid, then suddenly we're going to have a piece of paper. Because suddenly you have to grow up. You can't be a teenager anymore. But what I want you to see is that God doesn't just say that, that the meaning of your marriage is your kids. It's your oneness. 
You see, a married couple, a husband and wife, when they make love, they are physically one, but it's an expression of an emotional oneness that's growing. It's an expression of a spiritual oneness that's ultimately a testimony of grace. That's what the meaning of real sex is. It's not just thrilling your body with a series of partners. It's not just using all kinds of weird things to get higher. Your culture is living there. The Canaanites all live like that. I want you to know there's nothing new under the sun. A friend of mine was doing a dissertation on Ugarit, which is on the Canaanite culture. He, had to, he quit doing it. It was worse than reading Penthouse. He never got his doctorate degree because it was so dirty. What he was trying to study, the, his whole dissertation was focused on the Canaanite literature to help it with its relationship to Hebrew literature. All the stuff that you think is brand new that your kids think mom and dad don't know anything about, that's why God brought judgment against the Canaanites. And that's what the writer is talking about here. He says, he says I brought you back to be different. I brought you back to be my holy people because I want you to become one and to make love without shame. I wrote a book called Love Without Shame. And one of my friends at one of the conferences said, man, that's an awesome title because I guarantee you if, if two teenagers do it outside of marriage, there's guilt. If you do it as young adults and you're not, you don't have this, you're going to have shame. Some of you right now are really struggling in your marriages because You've never really dealt with. We didn't wait. So you say, Dave, what should I do? You should ask the Lord to forgive you. That's what Calvary's about. And you should ask the Lord to pour his forgiveness. And you husbands need to recommit to your wife that I will keep my promises to you because of Jesus. And you wives need to do the same thing. I don't want you to get discouraged this morning. Some of you are hearing this stuff for the very first time. And some of you have never, never heard it. And I want you to know there's tremendous good news. I don't want you to get discouraged. If you've been living together, like my friend, get married. And I would challenge you, break the relationship, move out. You girls especially. How are you going to trust a guy until he shows you that I can control that area of my life? How can you guys trust a woman? You guys have to show each other. We submit to God. We take sex to be a holy thing. It's done in obedience to the Lord. You're going to have to show each other that you're not controlled by those passions. And then it become one flesh. And notice what it goes on and says an incredible thing. It says, because they were seeking a godly offspring. I want you to realize that kids aren't a bad thing. I love the, the solidity of the marriage covenant. Because that's what gave me my four kids. And now it's produced eight grandkids. And I want every one of you. It doesn't mean that you have to have kids because you can have spiritual kids. And I want to pull you singles in. Don't sit there saying, I don't need to hear this. Yes, you do. You got what I'm saying? Every one of you are influencers. And the scripture is saying, I want you to keep your covenant. Then you become one flesh. Because then you can produce kids that will come to know Jesus. And that explodes into multiplication and God working. And that's when God says, I hate divorce. But you know the incredible thing as we close today? In Hosea chapter 2, God doesn't warn against cougaring. He did that in Proverbs 2. He doesn't warn against getting trophy wives. But what he does is he tells an incredible story. 
And the incredible ultimate husband of the universe says, my wife in Hosea 2 was not just a cougar. When she was young, she was immoral. She turned away from her immorality for a few minutes when we got married, and then she split again, and she worshiped the golden calf. If you guys, everybody asks me, you read the Old Testament, you need to read the Old Testament from beginning to end. You know what we're going to find out? Everybody is immoral. Everybody is idolatrous. Nobody keeps their promises. Noah is the only man righteous. He makes it through the flood with his family. And then in Genesis 9, he gets drunk as a skunk and plunges the whole line of Canaan and his family into immorality and idolatry. And I want all of you to ask some really serious questions. Our church is a mess. Some of you have been telling me that all week long. That's true. So are you. So am I. And that's why Hosea 2, right in the middle, it says God brings tremendous judgment. I want every one of you to know, if you cougar, God will discipline you. In fact, if you're one of his kids and you don't turn around, 1 Corinthians 5 tells us you might go home. If you don't feel anything when you cougar, then there's a really good chance you've never met the Savior. So you need to go back to the cross. If you live for a trophy wife, if you go away on a business trip and you don't keep yourself pure and nothing happens in your guilt and your shame, if I'm teaching and it just blows right through you, then I don't know where you stand with the Lord. But I want every single one of you that's listening to my voice, Hosea 2 says that the ultimate Lord God in heaven, he says, I know you were in former marriages. And I know that some of you have blown it. I know that some of you have had wives or husbands that have wandered away. It's the last thing you ever want. And God is saying, I hear your tears, and I, I am crying with you. And you are not in a church family that judges you. Because Hosea 2 speaks about the fact, it, it blows me away every time I think about it, that the ultimate, pure, holy, just one entered into a relationship with Israel, and she was unfaithful, didn't keep her promises. She was disobedient. She worshiped other gods. She was immoral. In Hosea chapter 2, it says, I'm going to take her into the wilderness, get her all alone, and then I'm going to speak upon her heart. Instead of the smooth words of the adulteress, God's going to use the smooth words of a faithful husband that says, I want you to come back, honey. I'm the one that will provide for you and will love you, and will keep his promises to you. In Hosea 2, God is waiting for Israel to respond. And then she does respond. And Hosea 2 actually predicts the future of the planet. When finally God's Old Testament people have a heart that melts, and they turn away from all their secularism, and they turn away from all their false gods, and they look on the one that they pierced, then the whole creation is going to explode with newness. The young kids, you want ecology? That's the ultimate ecological hope. And one of the greatest things you can do for the environment today is to not be immoral. 
and not be an idolater and not to live for yourself and to live for this incredible Savior that on the cross of Calvary stretched at his arms and let them pierce his hands, pierce his feet, let his blood flow from his side because he comes after sinning, disobedient, idolatrous people. 